0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional
1: conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here on this Thursday, October 29th, as we power our way towards this election. Everyone is wondering what will be the future of our republic. But of course, for those who are veteran listeners of this Listeners to this show, you know that the election is not the end all. It it certainly has this degree of importance, but whether Biden wins or whether Trump wins, we have our work cut out for ourselves because we have the worst form of anarchy and tyranny in this country, the most severe and widespread than we've ever had really since the settlement of this continent, since the 1600s. We have never had such ubiquitous rioting, assault on businesses, on individuals, burning, looting, that has gone undeterred. Likewise, we have never had such a deep and severe violation of life, liberty, and property. Again, it's just shocking watching how these people beat up cops and they cower in Philadelphia while suddenly the cops seem tough on these Jewish women business owners. Saw this video of this jewelry store owner Being yelled at and given a citation for I don't even know what she did. Being opened um, in a time of COVID communism. That needs to change. I'm sick of all these fair weather conservatives that are there for elections. Daniel, we got to win. Oh, election, election. And then they die the day after. Well, that's when you got to start. That's when the fight starts. So we're going to be prepared for that. Now, folks, one way you can prepare is by supporting this show, but also supporting yourself. By arming yourself with the best holsters known to man, and they are We the People holsters. Look, the cops are not going to be there for you. I think that much we know when BLM and Antifa come for you, or just the -the run-of-the-mill burglars and robbers that are being let out of prison, they're not going to be there for you. And I think we know that no matter what, We are facing a very violent, turbulent period the next few weeks. Whether Biden wins and the criminals are emboldened, whether Trump wins and they protest and riot, that's why it's almost impossible to buy guns and ammo. But what people are forgetting is that you need a solid holster. You need to be in position where you could always draw and shoot. You gotta practice like that at the range, which is why I always have my We the People holster on me. Right now I have it snugly fitting my TPS or TP9 SX SFX um, Elite, but I have an elite holster with it. At just $39. We the people holsters are custom designed to fit your firearm perfectly. Unlike Everything else you buy that's cheap and garbage made in China, this is made right here in the USA. There are thousands of options to choose from, right-handed, left-handed, almost any gun, the main, main firearm that's manufactured. They have something, they have propriety clip designs that allow you to easily adjust the cant and the ride. Um, and it really has the perfect balance of comfort, security, um, but also versatility that it easily draws, but it has a nice click when you... Um, when you put it back in, go to WeThepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR to get your very own We the People holsters. Every holster ships free and comes with a lifetime guarantee. And then here's the deal: ten dollars off with the offer code CR satisfaction guarantee. So go to we the peopleholsters.com forward slash CR, we the peopleholsters.com slash CR offer code CR for ten dollars off. Now once you get yourself a holster, and you're armed physically. You need to be armed intellectually. And the last thing I want is for people to be happy with a new normal. A new normal economically, a new normal security-wise, a new normal liberty-wise. I'm really enjoying the lessons I give my son. Uh, We're up to the Boston Tea Party. And I'm continuously showing him how the usurpations weren't that bad at that point. But nonetheless, the patriots had an agenda to make the colonists feel, feel the pain by agitating the British and making it worse because they knew that the worst thing you can do is get used to it. Because once the tyranny is too bad, you don't have the power to rebel against it. That was the lesson that we see over and over again throughout that period. It's actually funny. If you look at the indictment of King George and the Declaration of Independence, you have a little bit of this juxtaposition of anarchy and tyranny. That they accuse them of not doing their job of protecting them against the Indians. But at the same time, you know, the tyranny, the quartering acts and the intolerable acts and yada yada. But again, that's a fraction of, of the degree of anarchy and tyranny we are facing today. And that has occurred the last four years while Trump is president. So we're going to need to look towards the next four years to see if Trump wins, how we reverse course. And it's not going to happen on its own. It's not going to happen with conservatives that are asleep and are basically buttered up on a bunch of garbage. You know, garbage Fox News, which is why folks right now you can get $30 off an annual subscription to blaze TV. So make sure you go to blaze TV forward slash CR and put in promo code Daniel for your full annual subscription. You'll get Steve Dace, You'll get Phil Robertson, all the shows we have. Um, obviously Mark Levin, Glenn Beck, all for off, it'll wind up being less than $6 a month, dirt cheap. And that is where you're going to find out the truth, not on Fox News, not on some of these other uh, channels of empty calories. Because that's the thing, the fight really does begin then. You, You know, one of the examples I'm seeing right now is a lot of people are talking about the quarter two GDP numbers or quarter three Oh, my gosh, this is amazing. GDP was up 33%. I mean, it wasn't up 33%, but at an an annualized rate, it was up 33%. It's about a quarter of that, obviously. And, yeah, well, what goes down comes up. What goes up comes down. I mean, because we had the worst decline, so we have the greatest gain. But we are still, the GDP is still 4% lower than it was when this started which is still a greater decline than the entire duration of the Great Recession. So let's not forget that didn't have to happen. And we have a lot of work to make up. And if we allow the Corona fascism to continue, that's not going to, you know, th- 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 that's not going to get better. So again, this is how we sometimes sell out for ephemeral talking points. Oh, look, look at the Trump economy. Well, it's not a matter of a Trump economy, a Biden economy. It's Corona fascism. You know, I don't. I don't think we have to lie to ourselves and and make the situation better than it is. If you want to run with that talking point until Tuesday, fine. But starting Wednesday, just recognize that we we still have many states that are locked down too much, and that's got to change. And as soon as Trump wins, remember he's going to have budget leverage. You can imagine if Trump. There is a budget bill, a budget deadline due on December. And Trump should make it clear. I will cut funding to states that do not reopen. You will not get another penny. You want to go and violate the Bill of Rights, do it on your own dime. It's kind of tough, according to some, to do that the last couple of months. Fine. But if he wins a surprise upset victory... That is the time to do it. That's also the time to go after sanctuary cities and criminal aliens. I'm going to have a terrible, tragic story out today about an illegal alien who is, I mean, he wasn't, he, ultimately he got asylum, as one of these bogus asylees, and you know he shouldn't have gotten, and that's the point, where he was swigging, he's a video of him, he made of himself swigging beer while driving and saying how he drives better when he's drunk, Literally eight minutes later, he crashed into a Honda and killed all three of its occupants. Three Americans dead. And this happens almost every day. The legal alien drunk driving. That needs to be dealt with. That has not been dealt with. Interior enforcement has not been dealt with in the first term. It's gotten worse. That needs to be dealt with. Among many, many issues. So folks... I do want to get to some election news, as I've noted that I'm not going to spend all week just talking about and speculating about an outcome that we're all going to know about anyway. We're always going to continue talking about first principles, but in our next segment with our next guest, I really want to straddle both and talk about something that is a long term problem. It really gets back to first principles of both the issue of judicial supremacism in general, the lower courts running amok, um, specifically, the proper role of each respective branch of government and, and the layers of state and federal government on certain things and how the courts have just, you know, flipped it on its head what states have power to do, they're denuded from doing what they don't have power to do, you know, like life, liberty, and property under COVID that they could totally take, and it's like up is down, down is up. So with us today is uh, Derek Muller. He's associate professor at Pepperdine Law School. Uh, We had him on a little while back to talk about Amy Barrett's nomination. He actually graduated from Notre Dame and was a student of Justice Barrett. Um, He's also visiting professor at several other uh, law schools, and he's taught classes on many areas of law, but particularly election law. And this was the one topic we didn't have time to talk with Professor Muller last time, but in case you guys haven't realized, there were some major Supreme Court motions slash denials, decisions, orders last night with regard to the critical states, balloting in the critical states of North Carolina and Pennsylvania. We had the somewhat you know, partial Republican victory in Wisconsin the day before the setbacks in those other two states last night. This stuff gets very complicated. Um, because, you know, sometimes they're temporary setbacks, but in the long run, we're really gonna, you know, win or Republicans are gonna win. Uh, what are the ramifications? With us to unpack it is Professor Mueller. Hey, Derek, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I've been meaning to do this for a while because like every day I see these things, I'm like, I gotta get you on. (laughs)
0: Um, well, there's, there's, I, I hope there's going to be no more developments for a few days at least. So my news <laughs> shouldn't be, uh, whatever uh, analytics we have won't be outdated at least until election day. So. It,
1: it's crazy, but 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 we'll, we're definitely going to have stuff after the election. I mean, unless it winds up being a blowout. But I, I, I don't just want to talk about this election because you know this has been happening for quite a while. Again, I'm a strong believer that the North Carolina Governor, um, uh, Roy Cooper. Uh, defeated his Republican based on just the margin that was uh, completely obtained completely through ballot harvesting, that pursuant to North Carolina state law, and that law is duly vested in them by the United States Constitution to set the qualifications of the balloting process, that it is Mm -hmm. illegal to do that, um, aside from being pretty insidious, and, and there are even some liberal writers that are now against it, And they are, you know, Fourth Circuit was like, hey, this is what we're doing. And it's like we've never had a Supreme Court hearing on this. But somehow, I mean, I know I guess we are going to see a case on that this term. And it seems like the Democrats are getting away with creating these novel, you know, voter procedures that they don't wind up duly passing through a legislative body and they get away with it. So that's my general concern I want you to give over to us. But first, if you can just give us a bulletin of what occurred last night in Pennsylvania and <laughs> North, North Carolina.
0: Well, last night might be more depressing for your listeners, right? I mean, I mean you can talk about I mean. What, what's been happening in the lower courts is there there's just been there is so much cash flowing out there for litigation. There is so much money being invested in political parties um, and especially the Democratic Party to spend money on specifically litigating these issues. And it's worth emphasizing, you know, you mentioned the legislature and people, you know, often mock the legislature. Oh, Who does anything? I mean, state legislatures do a lot and they've enacted a lot of laws in a time of coronavirus. And I think it's fair to say and this is not a hyperbole it has never been easier to cast a ballot anywhere in the United States. The the opportunities you have have been expanded so dramatically in in ways that are unprecedented in scope. And we're seeing people take full advantage of them in these record early voting turnout things. I mean, we're we're anticipating record turnout for that reason. I mean, it has the the barriers to voting have been reduced um, significantly throughout the United States. And yeah, and this is a line, right, Justice Gorsuch has sort of said, um, and yet it's not enough, <laughs> that, yeah. that there remain litigation that's happening. And so um, I, I want to I frame the, the federal side before you to the state side, if I could for a moment. Um, sure. A lot of cases that are filed in federal court, I mean, it just it starts with forum shopping. It starts with finding the district and the division within the federal district that is going to have the judge that's most likely going to get your case. And then it's picking those most sympathetic judges. And in previous elections, it worked out pretty well because the state was reluctant to appeal it, or maybe a party wasn't necessarily intervening in the case. Um, but what has happened is even in these cases where district court judges are essentially engaging in, in sort of a legislative process of determining what, what what the right to vote ought to look like, um, courts of appeals have been issuing orders holding off on those decisions because mm. you can't forum shop then <laughs> the Court of Appeals. And I mean, you have, you have the random three judge panel and a lot of them have been saying, listen, too close in time to the election. We're not going to do this. Uh, and in a way, it's a little bit of a, of a cop out because they're saying it's too close in time to the election rather than you got this wrong on merits. Uh, <laughs> right. And so they're doing that. And that's what a lot. Actually, the Supreme Court has been pretty consistently out of Wisconsin and elsewhere um, saying the same thing. Listen, we're not going to sort of revisit these rules. But there have been. Sort of, there has been a different approach on the state side, um, and that is particularly out of Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Um, and I think one thing that's reflected in, in Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote separately in Wisconsin litigation, is he, he views these state court decisions differently or decisions within the state a little bit differently to say, listen, once the state's sort of done it, we're going to be a little bit more hands off. Whereas yeah. others like Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch have written in other places in Justice Alito, um, listen, you, we don't just abdicate our responsibility here when it comes to state court decisions. Uh, it's an As article As it relates to a question. national
1: federal election.
0: Yes, yes, yes. For article one, the elections clause gives the state legislature the power to control the manner of holding elections unless Congress steps in with the rule. Article two, each uh, state shall appoint a number of electors in the manner that the legislature directs. And and, you know, Pennsylvania is pretty egregious where we have a, a state law on the books that says um, ballots are due on Election Day and the Supreme Court says, yes, that's right. Um, but we think uh, we don't want that rule on the books right now. We're going to extend the deadline three days and, and we'll accept all, post, all ballots without a postmark up until that Friday after Election Day, too. Um, And so you can say, "Oh, it's just a state law. The state can do whatever it wants." Uh, But 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 it implicates a federal principle, right? It implicates not just a federal principle, right? The the Constitution dictates this power to the legislature. And if the state Supreme Court reworks the statute, um, the the federal courts ought to get involved. So it's these two cases in particular, Mm -hmm. and and they're outliers in one respect because it's it's the cases where the Supreme Court hasn't stepped in. And yet they they are the two places where it's predominantly been, been, been sort of state driven policy that's been an issue.
1: So, so that's the thing, and 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 I love when they play like state. All oh, yeah, the state could do what they want. So you know, if the state <laughs> wants to set its its parameters on marriage, right. on 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 you know, uh, healthcare regulations of abortion, doctors and facilities, um, anything they want. Literally, a state can't do anything. You know, they want to downright just enforce federal immigration law. Um, then you know, you, you can't do that. But of course, if you want to literally thwart it. Like, then the the courts say that's fine. But, you know, it's like, and and that's the point. It's all outcomes based. And and look, more than anyone else I've written, um, I'm a big fan of, gosh, you would know this, and I'm having a brain freeze, that Sixth Circuit judge who wrote um, a book about 51 constitutions. What's it called? Um, Uh, Yeah, Sutton. Sutton, yeah. But he basically talks about 51 constitutions, the 50 states plus the feds. Where they go, you know, you could devolve things to the states, really, let's go with the state judges, they're elected, so we don't have this contentious winner-take-all, like, if you believe a life is this, or a marriage is this, or a citizen is this, or whatever, it's always decided in federal court and applies to all 50 states, let's, you know, let's make state judiciaries great again, and (laughs) (laughs) I'm all, and that's really been my message. And when it's appropriate to do that, we never do that. But then suddenly when it comes to this, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not just a matter of, you know, state legislatures have set these parameters for election law, but particularly about the timing of what we're talking about, these post-dated, you know, I call it late voting. So we have early voting, a month of voting, and now we have late voting. And to me, that's already a federal problem. I mean, the Constitution sets forth that Congress sets the election day. We're not talking about state election laws. If you want to have your county council elections in some August, well, you could go and and, and make that happen. But this is a federal election, and you can't screw up a federal election just because you're a state. (laughs) I mean, even a state legislature can't do that, but certainly a state court So, you know, in 1845, pursuant to their constitutional authority, Congress passed the Election Act where, you know, they set the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. In 1872, they applied that to House elections. And then when the 17th Amendment was ratified, Congress piggybacked off of that and, um, you know, made the Senate elections also on that same day. So that is, you know, you can't tamper with that. You can't. Mess with that, and you know it, it was. You look at what Joseph Story said um, about some of this, and 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 I went and looked at the Congressional Record in 1845, and they were very clear. They wanted one day, so you know no one would be given an undue advantage. And, you know, um, Benjamin Butler, Republican from Massachusetts in 1871, he talked about on the House floor, we may have a canvas going on all over the Union at different times if we didn't have a uniform day. And we we laugh because that's literally what's happening. They talk about... Um, You know, uh, gaming it out, you know, you'll be able to game it out. And we see we even have like these prognosticators now based on the early voting. Joseph Story said every reason of public policy and convenience seems in favor of a fixed. Time of giving the electoral votes and that it should be the same throughout the Union. Such a measure is calculated to repress political intrigues and speculations by rendering a combination among the electoral colleges as to their votes, if not utterly impracticable, at least very difficult, and thus secures the people against those ready expedients which corruption never fails to employ to accomplish its designs. And I'm thinking like, wow, like they would not have wanted all this early voting. But now we have late <laughs> voting. Doesn't that really violate federal law?
0: Well, I, so it, there's a lot there's a lot to sort of unpack because there's a lot of stages about this. I mean, it's, you know, at the founding in particular, I mean, elections were happening all over the place. And it's not just elections happening, you know, one week and then a different one in a different week. So you're having your presidential electors and one state's choosing them in October and another state's choosing them in November. And they're also like publicizing the results, so you already know it, it's like <laughs> it's like a presidential primary. Like you know that this state already went this way, and now how's that going to shake out later on? Um, so at, at the very least, we have some advantages. Where um, one is we 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 don't allow you to start counting or publicizing the count of those votes until election day, so that at least mitigates some of it. Now you're right. There's there's tons of early voting that's happening, and tons of sort of banking and speculation about all that stuff. Um, And we can have, I think, really interesting um, and defensible conversations to say, we should all enter the polling place on November 3rd with the same information. Yes. um, And that would be a very good thing for us. And that if we're going to have early voting, it should be a matter of concession out of necessity. A lot of this arose, a lot of the first early voting arose out of the Civil War, where soldiers were gone and states in the North said... Uh, We want Lincoln (laughs) reelected. What can we do to empower and enfranchise those voters? But yeah, this this sort of this these notions that that states should accept sort of ballots cast by election day, three, six, nine, ten days afterward. um, You know, it's really it really does invite some concerns and undermining sort of the reliability like we don't even know how many ballots we've got on hand until election day and we're just waiting to figure it out and and in pennsylvania and so i think there are challenges to think about it but pennsylvania's is the most egregious in that if, if you find a ballot on friday november 6th without a postmark on it um it's going to count the presumption is it counts and that's I mean, the, 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 this invites, I think, an unusual level of mischief, and I think it is probably the most problematic decision I've seen from any of these courts so far. At least a lot of the other things have been tethered to what other states have done, whether yeah. well reasoned or ill founded. But this one is really goes a little bit a little bit farther than than I've even seen.
1: So where do we stand with this stuff? We had the North Carolina and. Um, Pennsylvania petitions from the Republican parties in those respective states rejected by the Supreme Court. Um, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas would have granted this stay on those lower court or, or state court rulings. Um, it was a fourth circuit in North Carolina. It's the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in Pennsylvania um, to basically not count those ballots. But a lot of people have noticed that Okay, so Amy Barrett, she just got on there, didn't get a chance to review it, so she didn't participate. Um, Clearly, Roberts made it known in the Wisconsin case that he felt because Pennsylvania and North Carolina were more state, so he didn't want to get involved. But once Barrett gets up to speed, everyone's asking, wouldn't you have five votes? Where's Kavanaugh? He seemed to be pretty strong in the Wisconsin case. Why didn't he join that statement um, from Gorsuch and Alito last night. Yeah, I don't know. It's
0: <laughs> there are main <laughs> mysteries. He might have he might have joined but didn't write separately. Uh, the the North Carolina case is a little bit trickier because it in theory involves this grant of authority from the legislature to the Board of Elections, mm. um, that, that in theory is a real wrapped into it. The Fourth Circuit, if you remember, it was a it was, a, uh, it was a 12-3 decision, yeah. three Trump appointees all joined the majority. So in in my view, like the, the North Carolina one is a little bit more of a riddle. But going back to Pennsylvania, um, you know, Alito made it very clear this was on a motion to expedite the consideration for the writ of certiorari. And what's going to happen in the Pennsylvania case is the Pennsylvania Secretary of State has already said, we're going to segregate all of the ballots we get after Election Day. Um, and so this is going to keep, this is going to preserve the issue if there needs to be a dispute about it after Election Day. Now, mm. I, in some ways, it's 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 because you can't unring the bell, right? If if you count those votes, like all bets are off. So, so by segregating them, the Supreme Court can still weigh in. But it is, oh, I mean, to like say, here's a bucket of ballots that the losing party can fight about after election day is like, I mean, it is inviting the worst kind of mischief, right? And what are yep. you going to do? You say, well, here's all these ballots. Should we even open them in the first place. I mean, puts you in, in like a really it, yep. it, it, it's a setup to make it difficult to enforce the pre-existing law on the books and say. Well, why can't we just count them, right? Like, why can't we open them? Well, well, I mean, because the law said you're not supposed to. And the voters <laughs> were supposed to get their ballots in earlier. And this was like because we want to have some certainty and finality by election. Day. Not that we know everything, but that at least we know how many ballots we've got on hand to count rather than this other cash. So it's – Pennsylvania in particular is one that can come back after
1: election. So – and, and I obviously Alito warned. Think- Alito warned that that could happen, yes. right? Yes.
0: Yeah, I, I, this will be in your wheelhouse, I, I hope, because <laughs> I, I want to get back to sort of the, the federal court issue. And I want I want to think about the long game with you for a moment, because these federal courts are acting, your listeners, I'm sure, undoubtedly familiar, at least in some sense, with uh, Crawford versus Marion County Board of Elections, right? The voter ID case. Yeah. Where the Supreme Court looked at it and said voter IDs are at least okay in this case. And, and to be frank, like it was like conservatives sort of rallied around this opinion. Well, how great. We can now enact voter identification laws. Um, you know, liberals were really upset about this decision. Uh, how can Justice Stevens issue this decision in this case? Yeah. And yet it is the case. That extends the framework (laughs) of some cases that began in the 60s and 70s, peaked in a couple of cases called Anderson and Burdick, and essentially invited federal courts to engage in a freewheeling balancing test of all election laws. And what started in the 60s and 70s as mostly a test designed to make sure you weren't um, keeping third parties and independent candidates off the ballot. The Supreme Court in Crawford said, oh, yeah, we use this for all election laws. We use it for a voter ID law. And so while it might be the case (laughs) that liberals lost the battle in Crawford on the voter ID issue, they have won the war in inviting federal district courts by the hundreds to just review any any state law pertaining to an election and say, oh, is this a burdensome law? If it's burdensome state, I'm not sure it can pass muster. And these things that have just been inviting federal court sacking, gassing of legislative decisions everywhere. And it is, I think, one of the single most mischievous sort of approaches that's been happening in the district courts.
1: It's this black magic that's in the courts like this, like little, you know, they, they set this. It's almost like an optical illusion. It looks like a victory. <laughs> but then the, the, the implant in the verbiage of the opinion, this signal that they could just do what they want. I. I I've seen this in immigration law too, like where they'll reiterate the plenary power doctrine that's always been existing, but then they'll like put in an extra word there, like yeah, and Congress <laughs> has full power to keep out uh, if they generally haven't established ties. Whoa, well, like okay, well that that was added like in the seventies and eighties, the you know some of those <laughs> things, and then we'll start from Mandel. And 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 you know some of those cases, rather than going back to Shaughnessy and and, and certainly the 1880s, like well wait a minute, and and then that will be the new baseline. And they'll chip away, and it's a similar yeah. thing in Shelby County. So like you heard in the confirmation hearings, the left will still scream about that. But the irony is, Kennedy invited litigation, and they've won all of them since then. They've enjoined so much of what states are doing because of that. And and my my problem is that we haven't had a real bad Supreme Court opinion. On this, but the Supreme Court seems to continuously allow the ballot harvesting to keep going on Um, in North Carolina. You know, we we lost the governorship because of that. It violated state law, Um, and then ballot harvesting obviously ties into the um, absentee balloting deadline because a lot of what they will be handing in are mass piles of ballot harvested stuff that they just go around and and then they say you can't verify the signatures. I mean each one plays into the next and then they say, you know, like basically and this is really sick, but everything you do harms black voters. So, you know, I'm not kidding you, like some of these opinions are really racist. I'll never forget judge Mark Goldsmith of Michigan. He basically wrote that if you don't offer a straight Ba- party ticket ballot options so basically where you could click something and it automatically renders everything for one party you're going to create more confusion and irregularities and longer lines in black neighborhoods. And I think a Texas judge did this recently, something similar. Now, mind you, you'd apply it evenly. Well, you know, it's quicker in Republican areas, too, where most of them Republican. No, no. But basically, implicit in what they're saying is blacks are too stupid to get a photo ID when everyone has one, even when the state provides you for one. Blacks are too stupid to know how to find where the Democrat is. On the ballot, so you have to provide that, and if you don't, it violates the Fourteenth Amendment, which, of course, established no new right, no new principle. In the words of James uh, F. Wilson, who authored part of that clause, like, how do we get to that point? And the Supreme Court's like, hey, uh, that's that's kind of fine, you know. Like, we'll take our time here. Do you think that's going to change?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think one problem is so much of this emergency or expedited litigation is decided on, you know, as they describe this court's shadow docket, where it's just making these sort of emergency issues. And the problem is a lot of them are not being pressed after election day. Mm. And so you you could have like the cooler heads prevailing and like carefully planned litigation involving, you know, the, the voter ID laws, right? So when voter ID law is like, the 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 opponents are going to persistently litigate that all the way up. Whereas, if in Florida, right, Judge Mark Walker in Florida issues some decision comparing the the Republican Party to a Stalinist regime, uh, the governor, like the the Florida part, the Florida uh, you know uh, uh, parties are rarely appealing those decisions. Or recently, they were in the Eleventh Circuit and wouldn't take them to the Supreme Court. And where sometimes these cases go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says, well, we're not going to we're not going to hear these cases. And so it's really I think it's incumbent upon the parties in these cases to persist after Election Day on some of these disputes to get the full record out there Mm. and to get the court on record, to get five justices, if not six, (laughs) to say, look, what we've been doing in Crawford and Burdick and Anderson and all these cases Um, really district courts have run amok. And we need to reel them in and provide them some guidance and point out, right, even if you go back to a case like Anderson versus Celebreze dealing with, um, you know, the deadlines for filing to get on the presidential ballot and the court strikes it down, that March is too early. The court also includes a line saying generally the state laws are going to be okay, right? Generally, you've got legitimate, non-discriminatory reasons for having your your rules. (laughs) But this all falls away when these district court judges just like deciding whatever hot record is before them issue the decision. So I think the question is if litigants are going to be able to set up a good case, one maybe one of these where the justices have already been writing separately, for a full merits hearing in front of the Supreme Court and mm-hmm. a writ of certiorari to clarify these issues and corral the district courts from doing What they've been doing,
1: because this is the asymmetry we're seeing on every issue. But nowhere is it more devastating than election law because it's so timely and so consequential. And like even in North Carolina, where ultimately we had a landmark ruling where the Supreme Court basically evacuated from redistricting which is what we always wanted like you can't have the courts drawing it and i say this as a conservative living in maryland's third district and you guys could google that it is the most gerrymandered district in the entire country um and certainly i would benefit from having some other party do it than the democrat party here in the state legislature but what are you going to do i mean in general what was happening before that opinion is Republicans in the states that had the most egregious gerrymanders would never win. But Democrats in states that were less gerrymandered would always win. You had the Fourth Circuit just kill North Carolina for years when they controlled the governorship and the state legislature there. And ultimately we won, but we didn't because ultimately we lost elections based on decisions that later the Supreme Court felt were wrong but it seems like with the boldness of liberal lower courts versus the reluctance of the Supreme Court, we get this very terrible asymmetrical outcome. Um, where, like, like I often will see Roberts kind of lecturing or implying the like, like almost like a hands-off judicial restraint, and I'm the I'm a big fan of that. But dude, the judicial restraints got to start at the lower courts. You can't have <laughs> judicial insanity at the lower court right. and, and and the Supreme. Right, it, right. It's like it's like you know you have like the judicial JV team come in there and like beat a guy up, and then like the Supreme Court to you is like so like hey you know we're we're chilled. What do you mean like he like yeah I'm I'm chilled too. But but get your goons off of the states.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I think um, you. You've seen, I think, though, the Supreme Court has been issuing some of these decisions out of, um, you know, out of Wisconsin, out of Alabama, out of um, several South Carolina, out of some of these states where the Supreme Court has been asked and has essentially sort of frozen things in place. So when it has come to the federal courts. But but again, as, as I point out, it's it's whack a mole right now, right? And I think I think the lower courts are treating it as whack a mole, like uh, it's the old um, you know Judge Reinhart position. The Supreme Court can't reverse them all, right? So until you have sort of a clear, lucid guidance from the Supreme Court instructing yep. district courts to trim it back, it's just not going to happen. So I think that, in my view, that should be the strategic priority in the next four years. For yes. those who are sort of eyeing these issues to sort of get one of these cases squarely put up before the court so they can air it out and really provide the guidance for the district court.
1: Now, isn't there an important ballot harvesting case that's finally making its way to the Supreme Court? Um, there, so there was one, I think, out of Arizona.
0: And I don't know if that's the one that we're talking about. Right. Yes. But that's, yes. Um, yes yeah and i think you know arizona so one of the one of the additional problems that gets wrapped up in here right i I always like to think about sort of the spectrum of, of of ballot harvesting right there's there's like the the, the 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 obviously the egregious concerns in North Carolina, culminating in the 2018 congressional election out of the ninth congressional district, throwing it out because the ballot harvesting fraudulently you know yielded a result in the election. Uh, and then you know the, the point is in Arizona, the, the litigation is a different posture. It's saying, listen, we're trying to get out to tribal reservations where a lot of uh, Native American voters don't have sort of daily post office delivery at their uh, at their homes. And we just want to provide opportunities to to round up ballots on behalf of these voters. And so it's a question of sort of raising the most sympathetic uh, <laughs> claims in setting it up. But yeah, I think I think that would be, in my view, a ripe place for the Supreme Court to address it if it if, yes. if that one does come out of the out of the out of the, the Ninth Circuit. Because I think I think you're right. You alluded to it earlier in the program. There are there are many liberals out there who do say, listen, ballot harvesting is a problem. There have to be some restrictions in place. Who would say, you know, maybe you say. Uh, it's it's either a, an organization where you can collect no more than two or five ballots where we include your address on them. This is one thing that North Carolina did in its reforms this summer is to say, when it's a signature requirement of, of a witness, a witness for your absentee ballot, put your name and address on there so we can track you down. Right. So I think there's opportunities for that. But I tell you, you know, all bets are off if there's a, if there's a if there's a Democratic trifecta in Congress, I think a, I think a nationwide ballot harvesting mandate would be on its way out of out of Congress. And in that case, um, really interesting questions arise.
1: Yeah, I mean, because this is the thing. And, and, and again, everything gets back to, in my mind, uh, Thomas's dissent in fell. If you look at everything contentious going on in the courts and and really, in society, it stems from one thing: what is a fundamental right? We don't. We, we are at a yeah. point in this country where we have polar opposite conceptions of what is a fundamental right. We never had that in this country, aside from the issue of Dred Scott. That that was the first thing, and that's why that brought out the Lincoln-Douglas debates and everything about the role of the judiciary in resolving the question of what's a fundamental right. But now it's literally everything. So you know, in other words, what you know what thomas explained so so great is that a fundamental right is never a you know it's never a positive action and it's never therefore something that's going to result in using the courts as a as a sword it's a negative action and would result in using the courts as a shield it's i have the right to be left alone from governmental action taken against me but i don't have so i i government can't go and prevent me from voting they can't like block me from voting, but does government <laughs> but, have to enable me take an action to enable me? I have to have five Sundays before an election to vote, or I have to have the I have the right to have ballot harvesting for someone else to collect my ballot and hand it in. Uh, you know all these yeah. certain things, or you know straight ticket voting, and and no, that's not that's not in the Fourteenth Amendment. That's not anywhere. Um, but but yet, when you have things that are fundamental rights. You know, obviously, we're seeing with COVID, certainly a lot of things is being ignored. One thing that bothers me, and I, you know, I I haven't seen litigation on this. I might not vote. I'm in Maryland and the lines have gotten crazy. And (laughs) Maryland is Maryland. And I'm not going to wear a mask for two hours waiting in line. And I'm very disturbed by the fact that today's jurisprudence treats voting as an unalienable right. And really, as I've said before, it's close to it, but at the end of the day, it is a force of positive law. It's, it's one of the most fundamental positive laws, but it is not like life, liberty, and property, um, which is being violated now in many ways. <laughs> um, and what bothers me is this. The, courts, um, the court wrote an opinion, 72 opinion, I'm forgetting the case, you might know it, in Minnesota um, in 2018, Um, The landmark decision that threw out like a 120 year law. It wasn't insidious. It wasn't anything new. No party was trying to take advantage. It was facially neutral. And and it made a lot of sense to have a state interest that they didn't want, you know, electioneering in the in the polling booth. So they banned, you know, certain T-shirts and it was neutral, you know, of either side. Um, because they didn't want fights to break out, which I think are even more—it's even more of an interest today with the polarization and anything. But no, I have a first amendment right, and you know Clarence Thomas signed on to this. Everyone, it was seventy-two opinion. I have a First Amendment right to have the option of wearing almost any T-shirt. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little <laughs> bit what the court said. Yeah, yeah. But, but it, meaning I have the positive right. I, I'm, I'm able to come in even for a limited period of time, even at a polling place to have whatever T-shirt I want and a, and to not have that is clamping down on me. But somehow you could put a positive on my negative now and force me to cover my lungs in a very intimate way in order to vote, and if I don't, I cannot vote now. I don't see how, under current jurisprudence, that's not a problem. Yeah,
0: I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I know you weren't expecting much, that. Uh, yeah. No, no. I bet, the thing is, for you, I, I, I bet if you show up on election day, the polling places are going to be empty in Maryland, right? That's a, so I think that might be the trade-off for you. I'm going to try uh, it out. Show up on, yeah, I mean, I, my sense is that with with the with the sheer volume of early voting that's been happening, I mean, I just don't know how many bodies are left on election day to show up <laughs> on the polling place. So, I mean, I, but but it is this sort of interesting dichotomy, right, of like how we're supposed to define these sort of rights, how we yes. define sort of the scope of the right to vote, when, when do these sort of rights overlap with one another? Yes. So here I, I'm in Iowa right now, and it's. Uh, the, the, we've actually been instructed as a poll worker that that while I'm ha- while I have to I have to wear a mask as a poll worker, we're told that that because voting is a fundamental right, we can't force people to wear masks no matter what the state mandate wow. says otherwise. So it's a that de- is nice. In, okay. how do you handle the competing <laughs>
1: the competing? But but in other like states, they will state, turn you away. Stages, yeah. They they yeah, will. Yeah. They will be vicious and they will not let you vote. And and to me, that I mean, you juxtapose it to like the way you started out with the, the ease to which, you know, how easy it is yeah, to vote yeah, and how, yeah. you know, like 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 you could literally provide someone with a photo ID, the few people that don't have it for the million other things that are less fundamental that you need it for. Um, you know, and, and somehow they'll say that that's burdening a right to vote. But I could say you have to, you know, especially where there are lines where it's not in and out that you have to sit there because I'm telling you, as strong as I feel about it, it would be a deterrent to me to voting if there is a long line. And, you know, it's very disturbing. That is government taking a positive to your negative government mandating that you must do this in order to vote. To me, that that's a poll tax. I mean, that's. You know that's a big deal. Even even if you believe that there's efficacy to them, which you know I feel strongly there isn't. But even if you believe there is, that is messing with a fundamental right. But somehow it's like what what I find the courts are doing basically is they throw race into the mix and that shouts out debate. So basically they say, <laughs> um, and North Carolina has done this a lot. The Fourth Circuit has done this a lot. They basically say the Democrats concoct whether it's a certain early voting scheme, a certain style of voting. That they have gamed out that they get more black voters. Okay. And that's nice. You have a certain GOTV strategy. And if you <laughs> could pass that into the legislature, but they don't, they make the courts say there's a fundamental right to that form. So, my question is if we conjured up something like you get more conservative voters on Sunday with church, we have like, let's call it church to ballot box, you know, and we have a certain like, organization that gets them in and we say if you don't enable more Sundays of early voting these voters are going to be discriminated against and we know the courts aren't going to bite at that um because they only bite, bite at certain things
0: yeah the challenge is right i mean the court the courts have long recognized any rule you have it's going to keep someone away somewhere, right? Like, I mean, this is the mere nature of having rules. Have, yeah. have 28 days of early voting, it should be 35. Have 35 days of early voting, it should be 42, right? Um, and and ballots three days after election day, it should be six. It should be nine. It should be 10. Um, I, I mean, so this is, this is just the, the, the perpetual problem of sort of unraveling all these things. Once you invite courts to sort of say, oh, wait, I can find a voter somewhere <laughs> affected by this, you are essentially making that sort of judgment, and like, oh, well, then I think we should expand it. And yeah, I think, you know, getting back to the framing, I'm not even a big fan of the state courts making these decisions yes. right, as much as my federalist principles. It's like, put it in the legislature, let yes. the legislature duke it out. They're going to have different approaches and different trade offs. During COVID, North Carolina went through, and again, as a Republican legislature with a Democratic governor, Pass the statute with all kinds of accommodations built mm. into it. Right. Like make that a political yeah. judgment, because if I mean your voters care, right, your voters want both access and integrity. They want they want to recognize it. So, um, yeah, so I totally agree.
1: That, that's what really scares me how, again, this is the courts not just being a shield, but a sword. Where they are literally legislating. So, I mean, you know, I think we're of the philosophy that courts don't even veto and strike down, not in the sense of, of the way the body politic views it. They don't veto, they don't have the power to put, just say, no, you can't do that. Um, they, they have a power to give judgment to a plaintiff, but they don't broadly rip a statue ad out of the books. I mean, Clarence Thomas recently has been talking about that more in, <laughs> in some of his opinions, yeah. I think more aggressively than even he did in the past. And it's a very welcome development. And I hope he develops that with other justices. But what what we're finding with election law, if you can go through some examples, isn't it worse than that? It's not just they're saying the state legislature, you can't do that. They're affirmatively like saying, OK, so you have this amount of polls and this number of days. And like, wait a minute, like, where's your statute? <laughs> yes. I yep. mean, it's just it's just so scary. Um, What are some of the other aside from the. Um, post-election date acceptance of absentee ballots. What are some of the other litigation we're seeing in the states, the lower courts, where Democrats are trying to obtain an advantage by throwing out longstanding state laws?
0: Yeah, I mean things like um, you know South Carolina's witness requirement, a witness signing the requirement that before you submit an absentee ballot, or in Alabama, you um, a requirement that you offer curbside voting to voters, and the Secretary of State said, look. I don't have the authority to issue this. Uh, if, if if a court orders this, I'm going to have to make up rules pursuant to a federal court, not pursuant to state law. I have evidence of people of of like of, of, of a poll worker intimidating a voter when finding out when having the conversation of somebody who pulls up car- curbside, and I don't know what happens when the poll worker takes the ballot and walks away. Um, so it, it's it's it, it's extended hours, uh, ex- extending voting earlier, extending it, the deadlines to receive the ballots later. Uh, it's just it's it's a little bit of everything. And again, you know, I think the legislatures have been making these adjustments and accommodations. You've been seeing it all over the country in some states where they are mailing ballots uh, to everybody or in places where they're mailing absentee ballot applications to every voter. I mean, this is happening throughout the state. Um, but but again, this notion that that if some plaintiff somewhere with enough funding to file a lawsuit shows yeah. up and sort of provides some plaintiff who can identify some way that the burden is – But I mean, we're not far away from sort of guaranteeing that the state has to provide snow shovelers on your front drive so you can get out out if there's a blizzard on on Election Day. Oh, for sure.
1: Or even without a blizzard that they have to show up at your door with a ballot and maybe a free meal too and a nice sticker that says, I voted – and 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 that that's what they're doing. And again, this is the positive and negative that government has to take positive actions to encourage you to vote. The same-day registration, the automatic registration. Um, again, and this is stuff they were doing before COVID, so it's a joke. It's just like COVID is every like, look, you know, I mean, you know this on the policy side <laughs> too. Everything they ever wanted to do, like they think that there's too many people in prison we know that we get the message yeah, they they yeah. want people out of prison we we know that so now like hey there's covid well i mean you always wanted to do that so they let out another 100,000 and it's a similar thing i'm <laughs> finding with election law my my concern is so so just to finish up this discussion have you seen any evidence is there anything that the supreme court could take up on some of this Automatic registration, same-day registration, some other stuff that they've been doing in Wisconsin and other states. Uh, Do we – again, some states are enacting this legislatively, but I'm talking about where they haven't, and the courts are forcing it on them.
0: Yeah, again, I, th- I think things I – th- I think the most likely results are going to be so, – some of these are temporary or at least purportedly temporary to COVID. So I think those are going to be hard to see the long-term challenges. Mm. I do think to the extent that the legislature has made decisions like the Arizona ballot harvesting statute um, where, the, the, where we have sort of an established record, a trial, a hearing at the district court level. It goes up on appeal and the Supreme Court can sort of hear it square on. I think would be the next place for sort of a ripe opportunity to address the freewheeling district court decision. But it's hard. I mean, the problem is there are, there are so many things happening in so many states right now. It's hard to tell how many are going to be temporary, how many are going to be extended indefinitely. How many things that like so Louisiana was a great example of they, they, that there was a decision that the, the legislature made for the primary that they rolled back, and the general and the supreme and a federal court said, "What are you doing like you 've did it once before, and now it 's essentially a new a new right you 've guaranteed to the people once you 've been able to do it before so it 's unclear to me how some of these are going to play out long term um, you know I think one of the problems with the tyranny of the urgent is we everyone 's looking at November third. And then they're going to forget about these things until 2022 mm. or 2024. The question is, uh, what, what, what things after Election Day are the litigants still persisting and challenging um, in, in which the states are defending the existing laws in the book? And, and I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Do,
1: don't you think that 2015 Arizona case in the Supreme Court on the independent commissions to draw uh, ballots, um, okay. that was where the state legislature yeah. sued? Don't you think that that kind of sowed the seeds for some of the weakening of state legislatures?
0: Yeah, it's called Arizona Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission, Mm. where the court said um, the state legislature can essentially lose its power to draw congressional districts uh, under the Constitution when the people act via ballot initiative. Um, and they shift that authority from the legislature to another body. And you're absolutely right. Justice Kagan has already been pounding the table, citing that decision um, wow. in some of the other cases that have cropped up to say, yeah, we've already we've already dealt with this. Um, we're not supposed to be second guessing what the state courts are doing. See,
1: that's another thing that really scares me. And I'm glad you reminded me of that because that is a classic example of what I warn people about where Roberts – there's a bunch of really bad novel constitutional opinions (laughs) they've given where Roberts often wrote pretty solid dissents, and he did in that case, I remember. It was actually one of his better dissents um, where – you know, because basically – and and I think he even cited this. The joke is that came the same week as Obergefell. So here you had 32 or so, 30-32 state – ballot initiatives that resoundingly said we don't want to redefine marriage and they're like screw that as a federal court marriage is now uh, we define it, even though Kennedy said two years prior in Windsor that states define it when we want it to be. But yeah. now not. And then now suddenly they're like, no, the people have expressed their will in Arizona <laughs> to have the independent, uh, you know, unvarnished commission. And it's like, well, you know that you, you could make an argument for that. It's lovely. But the Constitution is different because there it actually says state legislature a bunch of times. And. You know, Roberts was clear about that. But then once they win and he is in the dissenting side, he kind of codifies that and he refuses to move off that.
0: He's already said he wrote separately in the Wisconsin case to say, oh, there's a reason we treated Wisconsin differently and why I voted differently. Or in the the Pennsylvania case, why I treated differently, because state courts are different and our precedents dictate otherwise. And already you can see the hints of his his turn to precedent as he did in Whole Women's Health to June Medical Services, right? You already see him unwilling to revisit his own dissenting opinion from five years ago. So that will be also one to watch and a reason why it's not, it's not a 6-3 court by any stretch of the imagination on some of these issues. It's, it's five justices at best who are going to consider you know, reinvigorating opportunities for the legislature to act.
1: Well, should conservatives be concerned that Kavanaugh could become the new Roberts on this? Or <laughs> I,
0: I think his, so. He wrote he wrote a pretty strong separate opinion. Right. I mean, he was being dunked on on social media a lot for it. I think unjustifiably so. But he did write separately in the uh, in, I, I, I keep getting, in, the, in the Wisconsin case. He didn't vote or he didn't express a vote in the. Um, in the North Carolina case, and again, I think I think given that three other Trump appointees on the Fourth Circuit didn't vote that way, I think there's some complexity, and I don't know what we'll do. I, I think it's too early to worry about him. Um, you know, the briefs were filed on Friday, and uh, ah. Amy Barrett wasn't sworn in until Tuesday. So we, I mean, so I think she's not up to speed on these things. It's going to be until after Election Day. I think it's just it's a, it's a wait and see right now. I would not I would not panic. I would not start dunking sure. on some of these justices yet. Yeah. Um, but but we, sh- we shall see what happens. And, and then again, it might be wide margins and no one's litigating anymore. I don't know.
1: Which, which in some ways, as you mentioned, would be a bad thing um, because yeah. certain litigation yeah. is needed just because of the mess that has already been created. And again, this is what I do have concern about Kavanaugh. And not on election law, because what he said is very good, but because he was a little bit, it's unclear what he did last night. It could be he did sign on to the dissent, but we just don't know. But because there's other issues where he appears to have a little bit of the Roberts in him, we found this before, in the sense that, man, I don't want to be perceived as too often kind of siding with a political outcome that's Republican. And again, I I understand that. I I agree with that fundamentally. But the problem is, it's when you have every darn lower court Getting litigation <laughs> forum shop to side with the Democrats. Well, then, yeah, right. I mean, you got to deal with what what is the proper law. Then, um, with that final question, what keeps you up the most headed into election <laughs> night, based on what you're seeing with election law litigation? What which thing do you I think mean- is the most impactful?
0: It it is Pennsylvania. By far and away, it's the single place I'm looking. It is the most closely divided – one of the most closely divided. It is one of the largest tranches of electoral votes. You have a legislature that's been at, at, at heads with the, the executive for the last several months, and the legislature could have stepped in at various points, but hasn't because it, it, it hasn't been able to broker a deal with the executive. You have a partisan state judiciary that's been very uh, you know, aggressive in its interpretations of law. It's invited a number of ballots that, that ha- lack postmarks that'll be counted up until three days election day. They, they've now segregated those ballots and set them into a s- special bucket to litigate them. There are a number of places where they can't process uh, vote by mail ballots until election day. And a lot of places, not, a lot of counties I'm reading now today, they've announced they're not going to even start counting those until after election day. And they also found that there's no signature matching requirement baked into state law for these absentee ballots. So you have, I mean, you have a convergence of political conflict, of wow. legal precedents, and of unusual unusual ambiguity <laughs> about the validity of votes all coming to a head. So it is the single place I am keeping my eyes. I mean, if Pennsylvania doesn't matter, then maybe that's not going to keep me awake, but, uh, but that is the one spot I'm watching.
1: Oh no. I mean, based on what you're saying, you know what that looks like. It looks like Tim Russert's, <laughs> A chalkboard, but it will it's say not. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. <laughs> I mean, just like you had that Florida Supreme Court, yeah. it's gotten a lot very conservative. Now it's changed over the yep. years, but yep. back then it was, it seemed a little bit similar to what we're seeing out of those four yep. uh, justices on the, on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, very, very activist in terms of just you know, creating these novel, novel rights that and again, yeah. I, I understand everyone's gonna have different views, but but I think what we're trying to say is from an intellectually honest way, It's not a matter of Republican or Democrat. It's a matter of what are the election laws on the books. And you're the one, you know, they're the ones who are trying to change them. It's not us. And it's not like, you know, we're throwing out their, you know, same day balloting type of things in the blue states where they've enacted them by a legislature. So that's where it really is not, you know, we're not doing in litigation in their states what they're doing where Republicans (laughs) had a control. Right. Right. So I think that's the important thing you're, 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 uh. You're looking at, look, if this is going to be close, you will be, I'm going to force you to come back next week and sort out the mess for us. But thanks for well, thanks
0: joining for us. for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure.
1: Anyway, folks, notice the biggest message that Professor Mueller had for us is that you can't drop the issue after Election Day. It's funny, I actually didn't even know he was going to say that when I framed the entire show around that in my intro about the fact that we're always so focused on the few days before the election, and then we just lose interest. W- whether the Republican loses or or wins, typically, either way, we just kind of drop it. And it's true in the legal sense, too, that it's funny how we're always into, oh, look how they're stealing the election. And then, you know, it's not like the Democrats stopped the litigation during non-election seasons. That's where they often win a lot of these things, especially on the more on, on the less imminent issues, but more foundational things of, uh, a photo ID, and you know you got to press on, and and that's one of the ways you keep pressing on in the litigation to to get the Supreme Court to stop shirking its responsibilities, uh, because remember we don't believe in judicial supremacyism, but we do believe the Supreme Court is supreme over the lower courts, not over the other branches, and this is something that, you know, our friends at uh, J. Christian Christian Adams Group always talk about when we have them on the show that democrats are working elections for the entirety of that two-year period not just the month before so again i'm ju- i'm just trying to impress upon you when when all of us are have this hyper and heightened sensitivity to the future of our republic and the the grave consequences of a given political event with the election we need to take it that seriously as the policies are actually being promulgated, whether at a court level, whether at, whether at a state legislative or gubernatorial level, or whether in Congress or in executive agencies. And we have the ability to to thwart it, or give input and protest it, and and work with local officials to to stop it and undermine it. That's when it's even more important than voting. I mean that 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 really is. And, and I'm not telling you not to vote. And obviously, um. Look, if you are in a state that matters, vote even if you have to wear a mask. Uh, don't don't take my words to heart too much on that. I'm half joking, but you know I'm in Maryland. So anyway, that is the lesson. The election begins with Election Day. That's when the news cycle begins. That's when the opportunities, irrespective of who wins, uh, come in different packages depending on who wins and in your state and everything. But Elections are never full sunrises, nor are they full sunsets against us. There's always what we can do if the Democrat wins, and there's certainly a lot we still need to do when Republicans win, uh, often even more. So let's remember that as we head into election day. We are out of time. Thanks so much for supporting our sponsor today, We the People Holsters. Again, Make sure to get your uh, discount with promo code CR at We the People Holsters. Free shipping—you can't get better than that. Till tomorrow, stay armed, keep packing heat, and stay knowledgeable.